Well, how comfortable are you with admitting when you've done something wrong? For the vast majority of us, the answer is probably not comfortable at all. For most of us, admitting to some mistake we've made or something wrong that we have done is awkward, it's embarrassing, and depending on the person we've offended, it can be downright terrifying. I mean, who among us hasn't wondered, what if I apologize and she doesn't accept my apology? Or what if I apologize and he rubs my nose in it and just sort of holds it over my head forever? When we've wronged someone and they have power over us, it's a frightful thing. I mean, what's mom going to do if I admit I'm the one who stole the cookie, right? What will happen to my career if I admit to the boss I'm the reason we missed that deadline? How will my wife or my husband react if I come clean about my addiction? Let's face it, all of us have been in those kinds of situations where we try to muster up the courage to own up to something wrong that we have done, but we get so worked up and so worried about what the fallout might be that we just sort of chicken out and keep our mouths closed. In those moments, we often think to ourselves, maybe if I don't admit it, maybe if I don't own up to it, perhaps my mom or my boss or my spouse won't be 100% certain that I'm the guilty party, and maybe if I just keep my mouth closed, I can wiggle off the hook. Yeah, keeping my mouth closed seems to be the safe play and the smart play. I'm just gonna be quiet and not say a word. Well, my guess is all of us have had thoughts like that before. I mean, I have, and I think you probably have as well, and it's really no wonder we think that way because our experience, for the most part, has probably taught us that owning up to something we did wrong, it's not only embarrassing, it's not only awkward, oftentimes it results in painful punishments and costly consequences. Well, today, we're going to be exploring this whole topic of confession together, But instead of focusing on confessing to others and all the negativity associated with it, instead of that, we're going to see what God's Word has to say about confessing our sins to God. So let's go ahead at this time, if you would, and turn to Psalm chapter 32. That's where we're going to be this morning. And in Psalm 32, we're going to see four reasons why we should be eager and quick to confess our sin to God. First, I want you to notice that confession keeps us honest. Psalm 32, beginning in verse one, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, I don't know if you've ever just sort of been rushing through your Bible reading. Maybe you have a Bible reading plan, or maybe you have a busy morning and your alarm didn't go off on time, but you still want to fit some Bible in, and so you you grab the Bible and you just sort of speed read through it. I'm sure none of you have ever done that. It's just me. But if you've ever been there, oftentimes when you do that, you can walk away from a passage and really have a 
terrible misunderstanding of what's going on. You can get the wrong idea about a passage or a set of verses altogether. And I think this is one of those psalms that if we just sort of speed read through it, we can really misunderstand what's going on here and what the point of this psalm is. I believe if we were to be speed reading through this, let's pretend it's Monday morning and we're trying to get a little Bible reading in and we're, we're short on time. If you were to just read these two verses, you might walk away with some idea like this. You might think that this passage is saying, blessed is the one who has no transgressions or blessed is the one who has no sin or blessed is the one who has no iniquity and has no deceit in their spirit, meaning nothing wicked or evil whatsoever. We might walk away with that impression, but the reality is this passage is not saying God blesses those who are sinless or virtually sinless. It's not saying that God blesses those who have no iniquity and they're perfect or nearly perfect. Rather, this entire psalm is a psalm of confessing some serious sin to God. You see, it doesn't say, blessed is the one who has no transgression or sin. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Verse two does not say, blessed is the man or woman who has no iniquity. Rather, it says, blessed is the man or woman whose iniquity is not counted against them. And then we come to this final statement in verse two, where it says, and blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, what does that mean to have no deceit in our spirit? Well, I hope you can tell by now that this is not the confession of someone who's sinless or perfect or virtually sinless or perfect. This is the confession of a sinner Hear me today, you only need to confess sin if you first committed some sin. And in this psalm, confession to God is being made. So what does it mean to have no deceit in our spirit? It cannot mean you have nothing sinful in you or you never do anything that's wrong or you're perfectly sinless. So what does it mean? Well, someone that has no deceit in their spirit, that is a person who once they have sinned, they keep things real with God and they keep things real with themselves. You see, when we sin, if we have no deceit in our spirit, we will not fudge the numbers. We will call a spade a spade we won't try to move the goalposts. We're going to remain honest to God and honest with ourselves. You see, each time we sin, we have the option of coming to God in childlike humility and faith and confessing our sin, or we can open the door for deceit to enter into our hearts. Deceit can enter into our spirit in many different ways. One of the ways this can happen is once we have sinned, we can find fault with God's commands. Sometimes when we fall short, when we break a command, when we violate something taught in Scripture, we come to the conclusion, the problem's not me. The problem is, God, your standards are too high. Your commands are too ridiculous 
and unrealistic. I'm set up for failure. And sure, this stuff worked in the first century when it was taught by Jesus and the apostles, but it doesn't work in 2023. Of course, when we say that, we show that we really don't understand what men and women were like in the first century. Because the reality is, God's commands have always been countercultural. They have always gone against our sinful nature. When Jesus taught in the first century, it was radical and it was a high calling, and it was just as countercultural then as it is now. And when we sin, if we're not careful, we can start to deceive ourselves and tell ourselves the problem's not really my sin and my need to confess it and be restored. The problem is God's commands are simply too high and unattainable. Another way that we allow deceit into our spirit is by half acknowledging the commands of God. This is what this might look like. The seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. That's that's a good command. I think that's a good one. We should keep it. And I'm going to say that that is something that most people in most places, in most times, should follow. But you know what? In my unique circumstances, I'm kind of the outlier here. There's extenuating circumstances, and I'm the exception to the rule. Yes, it's generally wrong to commit adultery, but in my special case, it's all right. When we do this, we tend to view God's commands as suggested best practices rather than binding commands for the life of the disciple. But this is very common. We tend to think our unique circumstances excuse us or we think I've suffered so much I'm now entitled to indulge in this sin or whatever we think, but it's a common way once we have sinned, we can start to self-justify and allow deceit into our spirit. A third way we can do this is simply by letting our ego and embarrassment get in the way of our confession. It looks something like this. God, I am so sick and tired of confessing the same sin to you over and over and over again. I'm irritated. I don't want to confess it. I'm embarrassed. I lost my temper again. I acted in greed again. I looked with lust again. I was an idolater again. Whatever it is, and you just get so weary of confessing that you feel justified in not confessing that sin and sort of taking your ball and going home. I'll say it again. Whenever we fall, and we will fall, whenever we sin, we can either confess that sin to God and be forgiven and restored, or we can open the door for deceit to enter into our spirit where we start lying to ourselves or contradicting the word of God or blaming God. And in many ways, the sin we committed is far less of a threat to our spiritual health than how we respond once we've sinned. You see, if we allow deceit into our spirit, and once we have sinned, we refuse to confess that sin, that allowing deceit into our spirit, that self-delusion, in many ways, is more threatening and more harmful to us than the original sin we committed 
in the first place. We need to be people who are on guard against deceit entering into our spirit. I have good news for you this morning. God does not require us to be perfect or sinless, but make no mistake, he does have requirements of us. Psalm chapter 24, verses three through four, we read the following. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? In other words, who will God accept? Who's invited into God's presence? What kind of person? Who will ascend the hill? Who will stand in his holy place? And catch this, it says, he who has clean hands and what? A pure heart, same idea there, who does not lift up his soul or perhaps his spirit to what is false. God doesn't require perfection, but he does require us to remain honest with him when we sin. Matthew chapter five, verse eight, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Same idea. It's not about perfection. None of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. It's well established in the Bible and in our mirrors. But this purity of heart where we call a spade a spade and refuse to fudge the numbers when we have fallen short is so key. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2 beautiful passage there. Listen to the words of God. He says, my hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. You see, when a person who has no deceit in their heart sins, they humble themselves they remain honest with themselves. They call a spade a spade. They don't move the goalposts. They don't fudge the numbers. They remain honest with God and themselves because they understand that although God does not require perfection or sinlessness for us to be saved, he does require us in humility to be honest with him and acknowledge with our words by confession when we have fallen short of his commands. If we do that, boy, we are in a good position to receive God's forgiveness and grace and restoration. But if we don't do that, well, we'll just see in the next few verses what we're signing up for. Verses three and four of Psalm 32 say this. David speaking says, when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess, when I kept my mouth shut, I didn't confess my sin to God, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And in these verses, I want you to notice, confession heals and soothes. You've probably heard the phrase, confession is good for the soul. Let's see a show of hands. Anyone ever heard that expression? Confession is good for the soul. Well, according to the scriptures, confession can not only be good for your soul or for your emotional state, it can also be good for your physical body as well. Did you know that the scriptures teach that not always, but at times, we might be suffering physically, some sickness, some illness, some pain in our joints or in our bones. We might be in physical discomfort or pain 
for no other reason than we simply did not open our mouths and confess our sin to God. In James chapter five, these instructions are given to the church. Is anyone among you sick? If so, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. Similarly, we also see in the book of Psalms 103, verses two through three, this idea shows itself again of how confessing sin and receiving forgiveness and sometimes physical healing are all interconnected and bound up with one another. Psalm 103, verses two through three, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all of your diseases. You see, back in our psalm, in Psalm 32, David keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't confess his sin, and he talks about this pain in his bones, this nonstop, day and night groaning, the heavy hand of the Lord being on him and just being totally zapped of his strength. That's what happens whenever we give God the silent treatment and we take the avoidance approach with God when we have sinned. David testifies to how miserable and torturous it can be when we refuse to come in humility to God and confess our sin. Did you know that there is no correlation between the amount of disagreements a married couple has and the happiness they experience in their marriage? That might sound surprising to you, but it's true. Studies have shown there's no relationship between the amount of disagreements and how happy couples are, but there is a correlation between how couples handle disagreements and how happy they are. See, it doesn't matter so much how many disagreements you might have or how many differences of opinion you might have. What matters is do you come back together? Do you humble yourselves and do you work towards a favorable, reasonable, good outcome? Well, folks, when we sin against God and refuse to come back together with him, there's not a whole lot of hope for healing and restoration and growth. We need to come back into that relationship with God and come clean. It reminds me of the quote from LBJ. This is a great quote this applies in business, this applies in your relationships, this applies in our relationship with God. Catch this this morning. There are no problems we cannot solve together and very few that we can solve by ourselves. God and God alone is able to forgive us of our sin. He is the only one who can heal us spiritually emotionally, mentally, but also physically. And therefore, when we decide to give God the silent treatment, we need to know all we're signing up for is spiritual, emotional, and perhaps even physical suffering. And that's what David is describing in verses three and four. But thankfully, as we get to verse five, we see David comes to his senses and he turns a corner. Psalm 32, verse five, David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here, I want you to see in this passage that confession reveals the heart of God. Notice how God responds to the confession of David in verse five. When David agrees to humble himself and confess his sin, God doesn't say, well, I'm gonna have you squirm for a while. I'm gonna keep you guessing. I'll think about it. Give me seven to 10 business days. No, he is immediately forgiven as he begins the act of confession. Several years ago, before I was in ministry, uh, I had a coworker who was a buddy of mine, and he had been dating this uh, girl for a couple of years, and they were in love, they had a good relationship, and the two of them decided they wanted to go on a vacation together, and so they booked a vacation for a couple weeks. I think it took them out of the country, maybe somewhere tropical, uh, but we were excited for them, and you know, hey, hope you have a great time. Well, after they were gone about four or five days, I received a postcard in the mail that said, we could not wait, we eloped. And there was this picture of the two of them on the beach with what seemed to be a very simple kind of ceremony. And I just thought, that's pretty cool. It's pretty heartwarming when a couple is so in love that they just can't wait a handful of months or maybe a year or slightly more than a year to plan a wedding. They are so eager and so enthusiastic to get married that they just run out and get married. I mean, I didn't do it that way, but I think there's something kind of heartwarming and endearing about those stories. It's a lot like when little children wake up at 4 a.m. on Christmas morning. You know, they know they're not supposed to get up too early, but it's Christmas, so they try and figure out. They've got calculations. They run them all through the night. They write them on chalkboards. Okay, at what hour can I wake mom and dad up on Christmas morning where they won't absolutely murder me, but we can get to celebrating Christmas as soon as possible. There's that enthusiasm, that rushing in eagerness where you know they almost kind of get the cart before the horse. That eagerness and enthusiasm is a really enjoyable thing to see in others. Well, did you know that level of eagerness and excitement to forgive is also present in the heart of our Father? Look at the Psalm again. Verse five of chapter 32, and kind of think about this a little bit. The second half of that, David says, after he comes to his senses, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. It's almost as if he has just come to his senses. He has just told himself, okay, I need to confess this sin. And it's almost like before he even gets there, boom, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's almost this instantaneous forgiveness of sin where God is just, interrupting him, not even letting him finish his confession before God extends forgiveness. God is chomping at the bit, eager to forgive his people whenever we come to him in humility and confess our sin. In 2 Samuel, we see the account also from the life of David where he's confronted, he's committed adultery, he's impregnated a woman, He's had her actual husband killed to try and cover the whole thing up, and then he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And listen to what the scriptures say. Nathan confronts David and says to him, you are the man. In other words, you're guilty, 
Not like, you're the man. It's like, you are the man. Like, this is not a good thing. <laughs> this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. I chose you to be king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. Why have you shown contempt for the Lord's decrees by doing evil in my sight? So his sin is being confronted in him. Let's see what happens next. David is confronted by Nathan. There's more details given. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your own. And then listen to what David says to Nathan. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Well, duh. I mean, this is pretty obvious at this point, David. But he finally acknowledges it to the prophet. And he's like, I'm caught red-handed. You're absolutely right. This is awful. I've sinned against the Lord. It doesn't even seem as if David has had the chance to confess it to God yet. He's just agreeing with Nathan. Yep, I've sinned against the Lord. And then it says, Nathan tells him, yes, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. It's fascinating. It's almost as if before David can even get the confession out of his mouth, the moment his heart gets into the right place and he starts to acknowledge his sin, the eager heart of God that wants to forgive, that wants to heal, that wants to bring reconciliation, kind of interrupts and barges in and says, you are forgiven. Reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. If you're unfamiliar with this story, a man had two sons, and the younger of the two sons tells the father, hey, can I have my inheritance now? I don't wanna wait for you to die. And the father says, okay, have it your way. Here's your share of the inheritance. The younger son goes off into a far country. He parties, 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 runs out of money. A famine comes into the land, and he has to feed pigs just to survive. And as he's feeding the pigs, he's so poor, he's so out of money, he's so desperate, he's kind of envying the slop that the pigs are eating. And in that state, aware of how wicked and evil and sinful he has been, he comes to his senses. And this is what the prodigal son says to himself. He says, I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. See what the son's doing here. He's coming up with his apology speech. He's working on his first draft and then refining his final draft of his confession. What's he gonna say when he goes back home? And basically it's, hey, I blew it. I don't even deserve to be your son. Just let me be one of your hired servants. So after practicing the speech, he gets up, goes to the father, and the father sees him off in the distance, thinks that he has the gate of my son, and it looks like my son coming. And the father sees him, and it says he felt compassion, and he ran up to him and embraced him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, he goes into the speech, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And before he can even finish his confession, the father blurts in, interrupts, tells his servants, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This parable was given to teach us in part about the heart of God and that father 
that is so eager to forgive that he's scanning the horizon. He runs up when he sees him and he doesn't even let him get the words out of his mouth because he's so willing and eager and ready to forgive that he interrupts him. That is a picture of the heart of God whenever his children come to him in humility and confess their sin. Confession gives us an opportunity to see the heart of God revealed. So the question comes up, if God is that loving, if he's that quick to forgive, if he's that patient and long-suffering and excited and ready and just revved up wanting to forgive us whenever we confess our sin to him, if that's how God truly is, then how should we respond? And the answer to that is our final verse and point, which comes from verse 11 of Psalm 32. And there I want you to see confession calls for celebration. After David suffers keeping his mouth shut and then eventually comes to his senses and humbles himself and confesses his sin to God, he confesses how he broke God's commands, it then goes into this, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When David confesses these unbelievable, unspeakable sins to God, God says, okay, you've confessed that sin. You've humbled yourself. You've come back to me. Now it's time to rejoice. Now's the time to celebrate. Now's the time to smile and be happy. Perhaps you're thinking this morning, that seems to be taking things a bit too far. I mean, shouldn't we, when we sin, do what the prophets of old said? Shouldn't we put on sackcloth? Shouldn't we put ashes on our head? Shouldn't we give ourselves lumps and be mourning and miserable, shouldn't we really walk around feeling terrible, beating ourselves up for our sin? Well, to be sure, Jesus does say, blessed are those who mourn. He does say that, but that's only half of the story. In Matthew chapter five, verse four, Jesus says this, blessed are those who mourn. Oh yes, there's a time to put on sackcloth, There's a time to put on ashes. There's a time to be remorseful. But once we've brought that to God through confession, it's no longer time to mourn. It's a time to be comforted. It's a time to be happy. It's a time to be restored. Listen to Psalm chapter 30, verses 8, 11, and 12. To you, O Lord, I cried out, I begged the Lord for mercy. Then you turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and covered me with joy. So now my heart will sing to you and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I will always, always, always give thanks to you. You see, 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to earth 
Jesus left heaven, he took on flesh, and he lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience to the Father. He did every single thing the Father commanded him to do. He was tempted in all ways like us, but without sin. And since Jesus had no sin, he didn't need to die for his sins. But he went to the cross not to die for his own sins, but to die for our sins. He went as a substitute. He stood in the gap. He took the punishment that we deserve on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And according to the word of God, if we have turned to Christ and if we make it a lifestyle of confessing our sin to God, if we do those things, just in humble childlike faith, it says this in Psalm 103 verse 12, if we confess those sins as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Romans chapter eight, verse one, for all Christians, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because that is true, because Jesus paid it all for us, since God doesn't require perfection or near perfection, but only humble belief and confession of our sin to him, it's only appropriate that we respond as it calls us to in verse 11 by being glad in the Lord and rejoicing, shouting for joy, all you who are upright in heart. This time I want to invite you to stand on your feet as we have an opportunity to celebrate the forgiveness of sins for all those who place their faith in Christ and confess their sins. If you have been forgiven of your sins, this is an invitation to say thank you and to worship and to be filled with joy. If you haven't, turn to him now. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved.